This morning's message is for all of us, because not one of us have arrived yet at that beautiful, perfect picture of completion. But God is bringing the pieces together. See, we weren't here last week, but I didn't listen to his message. I know Pastor Dennis preached this, because I heard the recording from his, from his lips that he emailed to me. And, and if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of James. We, we think it's a beautiful gift to be able to go through a book of the Bible, to hear from God week after week. What does he have to say to us? How do we understand this? And how should we live it out? So we've been going through the book of James, which is towards the end of the New Testament, so towards the end of the Bible. If you have a phone, I invite you to just pull it up and, hey, Google James chapter 2, and, uh, and it will pop up there for you. You can follow along with us, because you need to know this message is not my opinion. It's coming from the Word of God. And last week, Pastor Dennis pointed out that James is making a strong argument here by the Spirit of God that believers must live out their faith. Good works accompany authentic living faith. In fact, James asked the question rhetorically because this is uh, what what we might call a polemical book. James James is like, he's he's spitting here. He's he's preaching. And he's having this this, uh, hypothetical conversation, which uh, it's not so hypothetical. Many Christians actually think this way, or self-proclaimed Christians think this way, that, hey, I don't have to have works. I just need to have faith. It's just, it's a spiritual relationship. My relationship with Jesus doesn't necessarily affect my body. And James says, well, what good is that kind of faith? He says that kind of faith is useless, right? Let me see. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? It's good for nothing? As he said earlier, that kind of faith cannot save someone. He's not saying faith alone can't save someone in Jesus, but he's saying that kind of faith. Something that, you know, you you put a bumper sticker on your car and you call yourself a Christian, but nothing in your life is ordered around the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Can that kind of faith save you? Absolutely not. That is not the Christianity that Jesus teaches. It might be what your country music teaches. That's not what Jesus teaches. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian actually possesses a right relationship with God. So as we come to our passage this morning, it starts in verse 20, which was where Pastor Dennis left off last week. Do you need to be, or do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So remember, or or this is new information to you if you weren't here before, James is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. And so for those who are Jewish believers, they were raised in Judaism, but now they've encountered the risen Christ. They have believed his gospel. They are changed. They are followers of Christ. Not Jews anymore in the worship sense, but just by, by virtue of the fact that that was their, their upbringing. Now they belong to Christ. But still, their scriptures is the same Old Testament that you hold. That's the word of God. So James says, do you need me to show you from the Old Testament? That this is, in fact, what authentic faith looks like. Yeah, I would like to see that. <laughs> I, I can be foolish sometimes, and this person he's, he's hypothetically talking to definitely needs to know that, that there is a complete faith where, where faith and works come together. And we're going to see two examples from the Old Testament. They're his exhibits, as it were. Exhibits of living, active faith. 
And I just love how James pulls from the Old Testament because the Old Testament is just as much God's word as the New Testament is. Uh, one of my professors used to say the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed and the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. Two parts, one story of God's redemption. And so we're going to look at some examples from the Old Testament. And I'm going to read out loud for you James 2, verses 20 to 26. And we will look at those two exhibits together to be challenged. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, quote, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, end quote. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. A very powerful point this morning. One we all need to consider and think carefully on. A complete Christian demonstrates the gospel through faith and actions. That's our main point. That was James' main point. Let me reiterate it again. A complete Christian demonstrates the gospel through faith and actions. Now, these two exhibits we're going to unpack. The first is Abraham in verses 21 to 24. And most everyone has heard a little bit about Abraham, right? A significant historical figure, especially to the Jewish people. He was Father Abraham. From him came the whole nation and all the descendants of Israel. So every Jew revered Abraham. Well, that's, a, that's, that's the father of the nation right there. They didn't worship him, but he was special and dear to them. So James brings him up for reason. One, because he's familiar, but also because by his life, he shows that it's not enough to just say, yeah, I believe in the promises of God, and then never do anything about it. It's to say, yes, I believe in the promises of God, and then also to live it out, to trust him with your daily lives. See, back in Genesis 12, God made a covenant with Abraham. That means he, he made an agreement, a binding agreement. And God did this all on his own. Abraham was not looking for God. At least we're not told that in scriptures. He was not out uh, you know, trying to find God. God just shows up in Abraham's life and speaks to him and says, Hey, I want to bless you, and I want to use you to be a blessing to others. Pack up your family, move to the land that I'm going to show you. Okay. <laughs> Abraham packs up his family and leaves all of his relatives and moves. Well, most of his relatives. I think, you know, a, a couple with him, at least uh, one, his, his nephew Lot went with him. But for the most part, left all of his families and, and moved. Then he meets with them again in chapters 15, or I'm sorry, 13, 15, and, and he makes more promises, just obligates himself. God doesn't owe us anything. God, God does not need to be obligated to us, but God chose to. He said, Abraham, I choose unconditionally to do a great work through your life. It will require you moving 
it will require great sacrifice, but I am just choosing to do this because I'm a God of grace. Abraham's story is one of grace. In fact, God says, look at all the stars in heaven. All of your descendants will number like the stars. That's a, that's a dream come true. <laughs> for, for any Jew, uh, or uh, Old Testament man, it was a big deal to have uh, physical descendants and, and blessings and, and prosperity. And God says, I'm just going to bless you. And then God made a covenant with him, which involved sacrificing animals. In fact, it's a little gruesome, but it was, it was a necessary part of the covenant ceremony to cut these animals in half and to basically make an aisle with them. And the people who would enter into that covenant, the two parties, would walk the aisle, so to speak, and say, if I break my promise to you and I don't fulfill my end of this covenant, may I be as these cut animals are. So you're invoking a curse on yourself if you do not fulfill it. You know what God did with Abraham? He made Abraham feel a little drowsy and woozy. So Abraham's, you know, sitting down. He's not walking. God walks the aisle there and back by himself. It's an unconditional covenant. He's not saying, Abraham, if you break my word. No. God says, I, I will bless. I'm a God of grace. This is who I am. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 15 that Abraham trusted God. And God counted to Abraham as righteousness. He made him right in his eyes because of Abraham's faith. And by the way, God would be cut to fulfill our, our sinful debt to him. He was broken. He was pierced on the cross. God kept up every single part of his covenant still does to this day. Now, in the New Covenant era, by God's grace, we're told that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you have put your faith in Jesus, spiritually speaking, Abraham is your father. Because Abraham was a man of faith who trusted God. And if your faith is in Jesus, guess what? Because of Christ, we can look all the way back to Abraham and say, oh, he was a, he was a spiritual example to us. His one seed that blessed all other nations is actually Christ. In Christ, we are participants in this covenant of blessing. Genesis or Galatians 3, 7 says specifically, those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Now, why am I taking all that time to unpack who this guy Abraham is? Because it's actually very important. Just because James brings up Abraham, he could be doing that for a number of reasons. Here's why I think he's bringing him up here. He says, Abraham faced an incredible test of his faith. Yes, God was going to bless him, but God was also going to test him more than I think most any other human has been tested apart from Jesus Christ. And he says it, he says it right there. You see, when he, he was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. God tested Abraham. When Abraham finally had his son Isaac, who would be the heir of the promise, Abraham was 100 years old. He had to wait a long time to see that promise fulfilled. And finally, he has his heir. He has the one that God is going to bless the people through physically and going to create a nation around. And then God says, hey, Abraham, I want you to take your, your, your beloved son Isaac and I want you to offer him up. I want you to sacrifice him. Just, you just gave him to me. 
He's my one and only son. Is this a cruel joke? Abraham didn't argue. He got the materials needed for a sacrifice, and he went off to the Mount of Moriah with his son next to him. And I'll read two verses from that passage so you can hear what God does here. Actually, three, three or four verses. In verses Genesis 22, 7 to 8, Isaac says to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So they, they go up together, expecting that God will provide. Jehovah Jireh, in our series, The Names of God. Abraham is actually the one who verbalizes the first time in, in the scriptures. God provides. I just I trust him. I know he's going to do this. In fact, he tells his servants, we're going to go to the mountain and we're going to come back again. So it's like, I think Abraham thinks, I will probably need to sacrifice my son. God is going to raise him back from the dead. Well, let's see what he does. Whatever he does, God's going to provide. I trust him because I know God's character. I know his heart. He's not having me kill a young man for no reason. So he, they get up there, construct the altar. Isaac willingly lays down the altar. You see his faith on display as well. Abraham ties him and, and he raises the knife and he's about to go through with what God told him to do. And an angel speaks and says, stop. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I see now that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And that God provides a ram from over in the bushes in place of Isaac. God provides. God did not let Abraham down, just like Abraham knew he wouldn't. And Abraham and Isaac show us what it is like to actively live out faith. So come back to James, verse 21 of chapter 2. Was Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, to define that word justified is, is very important. And justification is an essential part of our Christian faith. That's why we're spending so much time talking about it right now. To be justified, uh, according to Luanida, a Greek-English lexicon, it says to demonstrate something that is morally right. To demonstrate something that is morally right is, is, is justified. We do that ourselves. The officer pulls you over for speeding. You are going to try to justify why you were going over the speed limit, right? Your, your, your pet is sick and dying, and, uh, and your, your loved one is home at sick with the flu, and the pharmacy is about to close, and uh, you got hell of a 10 red lights, and you, you've got every reason in the book. I want to demonstrate it, it was right for me to do this, officer. But, but James is saying Abraham wasn't justifying himself. It's God's righteousness. God reckons righteousness to us. God is the one who justifies. But Abraham's faith is in the Lord, and his actions line up with that. So his works are evidence of that justification. His actions are morally right because he has a right standing with God. It's so important that no matter what trial you go through, if you're going through a trial right now, you say God provides. You say that God is your Lord and Savior. Do you really believe that when your back is up against the wall? 
when it seems like there's no way out. Because trials reveal what we really believe and what we really practice. And today, there's this counterfeit kind of Christianity. There's a lot of people in our country that identify as Christians. They have the decals. They have the slogans. Might go to church. They love Christmas time. In many ways, they're, they're just like you and I. That's why it can be so hard sometimes to, to tell but yeah, how, is, how is someone a complete Christian or, or a mature Christian or, or a genuine Christian as opposed to just someone who says it. Lacey and I were just watching uh, On Patrol Live, one of our new favorite shows, and, and you get to uh, do these ride-alongs with the police officers. They've got the camera crew with them, and you see their whole interaction with these people unfiltered. So what Cops was back in the 90s, now you've got On Patrol Live and all these different spinoffs, and it's so much fun. It's, uh, I love the drama. You know, you love the conversation and the, and the car chases and all those things. Of course, we always love it when the officers catch them, right? It's, 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 we're not glorifying crime. We're glorifying um, the, uh, the pursuit of justice here, right? Well, we, we watched this one scene where this guy is just unhinged. Some kind of conflict with his neighbor set him off. And he is just verbally so loud. And he's like spitting and sweating. And, and he's talking to this officer and that officer. And I think he's partly putting on a show for the camera because the camera's facing him. And he's just, he's all over. And like, it's in the living room. This is where they're interviewing him, in his own living room. And, and you would think he's out in the field, the way that he's yelling and gesturing. And the camera is, is zoomed in on his face and then just moves slightly to the left and zooms in on the wall behind him. And on the wall right behind him here, there's a sticker. And that sticker says, let go and let God. <laughs> let go and let God. The cameraman zooms in on it and zooms back out. And this guy's just still going at it. And it's like, I don't know what that cameraman's religious affiliation is, but even he can spot. Hmm, this is an interesting situation. Is that what we do when, when trials come? It's really, really tempting to think, well, in this circumstance, I am justified by going off on somebody. I am justified by holding this grudge, showing this bit of bitterness, giving my spouse the silent treatment. See, that's self-justification. It's pride. No one is entering the gates of heaven because of, of their self-justification. Oh, I deserve to be here. Yeah, God, didn't you see how many times I went to church down there? Everyone said I was a good person. You know, and I, 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 didn't, I didn't miss a, a, an event in our church. And, you know, my whole, I gave money to the church. So, I, therefore, I deserve to be in. No, God is the one who justifies and he does it by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's where righteousness comes in. That's, that's how righteousness is transferred to a repentant sinner because of Jesus. It's not because I justify myself. But by my works, if I have authentic faith in Jesus, by my works, loving others, serving, sacrificing, enduring trials, still praising God, Letting prayer be my defense instead of my own vindication. That shows the work of God through you. So James is not saying here, oh, works justify somebody before 
God. No, he's actually speaking about uh, what what works are. I'm sorry, what a result of your faith is. Kind of like a, a credit card debt. Did you swipe that credit card? Your debt just keeps piling up, piling up. At some point, you got to pay it, right? But good good works aren't going to pay off your credit card debt. Something's got to pay that off. In the same way, our spiritual debt piled up before God, Paul tells us in Romans 3, that we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of God's glory. We are justified by God, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put this forward by his blood. So those who are justified are those who receive this gift of Christ. He is just and the justifier. So I don't justify myself. James isn't saying here, oh, your works justify you before God. Where he is emphasizing something different from Paul is Paul, in Romans, clearly defines, here's what saving faith looks like. He's defending the pure gospel. It's not Jesus plus works equals salvation. But James is not addressing that question here. He's speaking to the Christian, or not the self-proclaimed Christian, who says, it doesn't matter what I do, as long as I have faith. And James says, no, you can't. Exhibit A, Abraham. Look at Abraham. He's justified by his works. His, his works live out the work that God has done in his life. And you see, his faith is active. His works are active. They're alongside of each other. Verse 22. The word used there is actually the same word that we, we get synergy from. How many of you think it's a good thing if you have synergy in your organization, your business, your relationships in your family? If, if synergy isn't there, something's, something's off and something's going wrong. James says, does your walk actually have synergy with your faith? Your left leg and your right leg should move together. That's a complete Christianity, not this counterfeit Christianity. And that only happens if you have actually repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. Faith. Faith in the one true Savior. And if you have faith in him and he has justified you from your sins and, and reckoned his righteousness to you, then I'm free to love. And I'm free to give. I'm not going to use any energy justifying myself. I, yeah, I'm a sinner. You want to accuse me of something? Hey, guess what? <laughs> the Bible says that I'm a sinner and I deserve the lake of fire for all eternity. So can't really say something worse about me than that. So I don't need to waste time justifying myself. I'm just going to cling to Christ. He's my justification. He's my righteousness. He's my everything. And when I stand before God one day at the gates of heaven, my reason for getting into heaven is not me or my works. It's Jesus. He said I could come. And I believe him. I believe him with all my heart. And we spend eternity with the one who came all the way down to rescue our souls. So that's exhibit A. Now let's look at exhibit B. Rahab. Interesting lady, this Rahab. And, and a much lesser known character. 
and uh, uh, whether in Judaism or even today. Look at verses 25 to 26. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Hmm. So Rahab is very different than revered Father Abraham. Father Abraham has a song after him. Okay, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons of Father Abraham. I'm one of them, so are you. Goofy kid songs. Ad adults don't like it because it's uh, very monotonous and we have to move a lot. But Rahab did not have a song after her that I'm aware of. She was a lady of the night. She was also a Canaanite, a Gentile, living in the promised land, but not one of God's promised people at this point in history. She's just living that Canaanite life, fully immersed, uh, uh, living in the way of the world. The culture has a grasp on her. The darkness of her heart is fully exposed in her activities. That's just, that's just where she's at and who she is. But then she hears stories of this living God, Yahweh, who has rescued his people Israel out of Egypt. Egypt was the, the superpower of the world at that time. God leads them out with his hand, parts the Red Sea. And she hears about the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. All the Canaanites hear this and they're trembling. Because by now they know the Israelites are coming to their land and God is going to dispossess the land from the Canaanites as judgment for their great wickedness. And he is going to give the land to his people Israel. She hears this. And then one day, somehow, she runs into two spies from Israel who are scouting out her city so they can figure out how to destroy it. What's she gonna do? If she just embraces her city and she allows her tribalism to, uh, to affect what she's heard about this God, she will turn them into authorities and save her own life. But that's not what she does. Because see, she actually believes these stories that she's heard about this God. She is fearful of this living God and what he can do. And so she receives those messengers, hides them on her roof, lies to the authorities, and gets them off on a wild goose chase. Now, Scripture is silent on her lies as to whether that was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. I have my thoughts on it. We'll save her ethics trial for another time. But she sends those messengers out so that their lives are spared. She really believes God is going to give you this land. God is more powerful than our false gods. But she pleads for her life. She says to the men in Joshua 2, verses 9 to 13, I know that the Lord has given you this land. The fear of you has fallen upon us. All the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We heard about the Red Sea. We heard about Egypt. We heard about the Amorites that you destroyed, and Sihon and Og, the kings you devoted to destruction. And when, when we heard it, our hearts melted. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens and on the earth beneath. So then please swear to me by the Lord, as I have dealt kindly with you, would you also deal kindly with my father's house? Would you give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death? You get this lady's bold faith? She's not just pleading for her own life here. She says, will you also rescue my family? I believe that God is powerful to deliver. I also believe that he's compassionate and merciful. And will you show me that mercy by, by sparing my family? 
Because look what I've done for you. I've, I've rescued your lives. Exhibit B, Rahab. Look at her faith. So bold. Have I ever prayed with that kind of boldness before and pled God for, for mercy? Have I asked for mercy on behalf of others? Look at her heart for others and for her family. Look at that. Have I ever risked my life for the, the kingdom of God? James says she demonstrated the right kind of faith. This is active faith. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, you should have a sincere faith that God is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he said he'll do, which means my life adjusts accordingly. My priorities shift. And she went from a lady of the night to a child walking by faith. It's a, it's a gift of God's grace on her heart. And she lets down the spies from her window, actually, with a scarlet cord. So a red-colored cord that she lets down from her window. They escape outside the city walls and, uh, and flee. And, and, and they're spared. They're able to get back to, um, to General Joshua and the Israelites. But the men said, when we come back to the city, leave that cord hanging in the window. So when your city falls, all of our troops will see that's the house that gave a lifeline to our men. It's not to be touched. She has placed herself the mercy of God. Her life will be spared. <coughs> Isn't that incredible? God spared her life. And that's not the rest of the story either. She and her family dwell in the land of Israel. They enter into that covenant community and they observe the worship of the living God, a Canaanite woman of all things, not a Jew, but as faith in God. And in Matthew chapter 1, her legacy is preserved in a phenomenal way. See, this Christmas we're going to take a break from, from James and we're going to look at the hope of the gospel. Hope is here from the Gospel of Matthew. And if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, very important uh, a passage of Scripture talking about how we know that Jesus is the king we've been waiting for. And it's because of his family heritage, his line, the royal line. And once you know it, when you look at Matthew 1, verse 5, who do you find in the family tree of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the Son of God, and Solomon... The father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. There it is. For all to see, for all human history. The name of a prostitute. In the family line of Jesus. This is how gracious our God is. It doesn't matter where you've come from or the mistakes that you've made. It's not about doing good works to justify yourself before God. It's receiving his gracious gift by faith. And when that happens, your identity is forever changed. God is a friend of sinners. Not so that we stay sinners, but so that he transforms us in his beloved ones, his saints. And James wraps up his argument. It's pretty clear cut here. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so the faith apart from works is dead. Work it out, believer. Work out your faith. Let the light of Christ shine before you so that all might see your good works and glorify your Father is in heaven. 
Whether you're a somebody like Abraham or a nobody like Rahab, what you do with your life matters. How you live your life, how you love others, the priorities that you set, how you treat those in your family or your enemy or, or the homeless person on the corner of the street, how we conduct ourselves as children of God makes a difference and glorifies his name. Don't call yourself a Christian if you're not willing to actually follow Christ. I would argue that your understanding of faith is skewed. Because the genuine faith actually leads to action. You really believe that Jesus is on the throne of heaven and there is a judgment day coming? You run on grace. You receive that gift and you walk in his ways and you treasure his word and you want his his spirit to come through you. Otherwise, this can't be true. If we, if we really believe that someone can be a Christian and not actually have any transformation or have any life of the spirit or have any evidence that they have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, then what we're really saying is God doesn't actually have the power to save people. It's just a cultural kind of religion. And as we conclude this morning, I would like to ask you to consider Exhibit C, your own life. Do you find yourself in a long line of people throughout history like Abraham or Rahab or James or Peter or Paul who used to walk contrary to God and he met you and he saved you? You can close your Bibles, you can bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm just going to ask you a couple questions. If you really are in Christ, love one another. The other night we looked at our membership covenant. This is what the love of Christ calls us to do. This is how we'll serve one another. This is how we'll care for one another. But the principle of that covenant, the spirit behind it is, friends, if Christ has been so intentional to rescue us and bring us into his family, in what ways are we being intentional to love one another? Am I still living selfishly? Am I still pursuing my goals and dreams, but not the will of God? May I call us today to look back at biblical Christianity, that we would love one another the way that God has loved us. I would also ask us to consider who has a role and proximity in your life where they could point out some shortcomings in your life where you need to grow. Is there space in your life where people can get to know the real you and know the real struggles that you have, the real burdens, the inconsistencies, and you allow them to point you to the Bible for your growth, for your, your faith to work through those trials that God will be glorified. This is one reason we push small groups, but this is why the local church is here, because we all fall short God's grace is sufficient, but together we can help each other grow. I would urge you, not only love one another, but commit to community so that you can look more and more like Jesus. And if you are in Christ, when's the last time you shared your testimony? When's the last time you invited someone else to take that step of faith in Jesus? Or is the good news just for you? If God can use Abraham and Rahab, how does he want to use you? We're here for such a time as this church.
And if you're new with us, brand new this morning, I, uh, I used a lot of big words today. This is a, a, a thick passage. But I hope what came across is the heart of Jesus who, who knows you, made you, loves you, and wants to bring you into his family. And not only bring you into his family, but to work through you to reach others. If we can help you take that next step in your spiritual walk today, this is why our church is here. This is why I am here to help shepherd and encourage and pray for you. We have resources. We have groups. We have disciplers. We have counselors. And, and we're not going to ask you to justify yourself. We're going to show you from the Bible how Jesus is the just one. We're going to show you how you can have grace in him and have hope for life and eternity. Let's pray.